Tonight we'll be in Acts chapter 4, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. Acts 4. And we'll pray and we'll get started here. Lord, we thank you that we're able to come together and open your word again, to read it, to spend time with you, to allow your Holy Spirit to teach us, to lead us and guide us into all truth. And we know that those who receive your word with gladness will be blessed, and that's where we want, that's where we want to be tonight, a person that receives your word with gladness. We've prepared our hearts with song, uh, worshiping you for all you are, for all you've done for us, and that helps us then to receive your perfect word, your infallible word, and uh, it's truth. And we thank you for that, that we can hold in our very hands truth. In Jesus' name, amen. As we continue on here with the book of Acts, the Acts of the Holy Spirit working through the church and still continues on to this day, um, we see the first persecution that Peter and John and the rest um, find themselves in trouble with the world. Um, God kind of eases us into persecution, I think, sometimes for the most part. Um, This is them getting eased into persecution. It gets far worse from here for them. It doesn't get better. They don't just get over it and graduate from persecution school, you know, and then move on to a much easier life. It just gets worse. In fact, most of the apostles died martyred for their faith. John being the exception to the rule, he gets boiled in oil, gets left on an island of Patmos where he is given the revelation of Jesus Christ and writes that. Um, But not a particularly fun life. For any of them. And so as, as, a, as a pastor, as I share the gospel with people, and as you as, as believers, we, we all share Jesus with people, we are telling them about salvation, um, life, eternal life with God, forgiveness for all their sins, their, their redemption of their souls, the, um, the sentence of hell being removed from their uh, rap sheet, basically, and but we are signing them up for something else, and I hope we understand that as well. When you share Jesus with somebody and they are a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, they need to expect and need to be taught to expect persecution. Their newfound love for Jesus Christ will not be a blessing in everybody's ears. It won't be wonderful news to many people. And the closer they decide to walk with Jesus... Actually, the fewer and fewer Christians will be alongside of them supporting them, believe it or not. And maybe you've experienced that. But if you want to be sold out for the Lord and you want to live your life for him and you want to forsake this world and you want to call the world out for what it is, you want to stand up and be an ambassador for Jesus Christ, you will stick out like a sore thumb and you will be sore for it. And that's what's happening here. What a great example we have. The apostles have gone up to the house of prayer, gone up to the temple in the hour of prayer to do what they should do, praying, just seeking the Lord. They see a a man who's been um, an invalid from, as far as we can tell, from birth. Everybody recognized him anyway as the guy that sits at the beautiful gate and asks for money all the time because he's unable to work. He's so um, crippled up. 
And they don't have any money to give him. They're not just saying that. They really don't have the money to give him at this time. And they decide to give him something that they can give him. I can give you what God's given me. And he gets up and gets healed. And the whole world is turned upside down for Jesus at that point. The whole temple is excited about it. And those who are normally the focal point at the temple aren't anymore. The Sadducees, the priests, the the people that had corrupted the system, the people that God wasn't happy with at the time. He had to go outside of his prescribed religion that he had given them to reach anybody. We had to do John the Baptist in the wilderness. We had to have Jesus with 5,000 on the side of a hill. We had to go way out. And so they're not happy with what's happened here, even though a notable, this will come up a couple times, even though a notable miracle has happened They are not excited about that notable miracle. They're not excited about God's hand actually moving. The joy on everybody's faces, the excitement in the temple that they haven't seen in decades, probably. They're upset. They're jealous. It's the weirdest thing for Christians to be jealous of people who have found Jesus Christ and are overwhelmed with a love for him, and a joy for him. Why? What sin nature do we have that's so corrupted, so strange, that even as Christians we can get upset with other people who have more joy, a closer walk, a tighter relationship than we do? It's just a very slippery slope or a very dangerous thing. It can creep in. In verse 1, now as they spoke to the people, the priests the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. (laughs) Imagine that scene. It's so frustrating to read that. They're doing nothing but celebrating and rejoicing that this man can now, he's up. He's healed. They're all praising the Lord. They're all screaming at the top of their lungs. There's rejoicing. There's celebration. And they come upon them. What's all this hubbub, you know? And they were greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. We're the teachers. We tell you what the Bible says. We've always told you what the Bible says. And that's what the problem is. In what name or by what authority do you tell these people about this, you know, Jesus? We didn't let you do that. You're not ordained. You're not allowed. What school did you go to? Where have you been? What's your your pedigree? It doesn't stop here in chapter 4. That's the start. It happens to Paul. Paul had a pedigree. Paul writes most of the New Testament. Pretty good good guy. Took a while for God to get a hold of him, but once God got a hold of Saul, turned his name to Paul, He begins to minister and start churches everywhere he goes. Planting churches, not an easy task. You decide to go into ground that's never been plowed before, and you decide, we're going to just start doing this now and begin to tear up soil as a pioneer, spiritually speaking. And later on, he comes back to that field. I'm speaking of the Corinthian church specifically. comes back to this church in Corinth, And they don't like him anymore. 
Because he doesn't, well, first of all, he doesn't charge them money for, he doesn't have a speaking fee. I mean, how great can Paul be if he doesn't have a speaking fee? I mean, this guy, he's 20000 to get him to come. He's amazing. But that guy, oh, he's down the street. He's free. Whatever. And Paul has to go through this with them. What is it? Do I not charge you enough? He's so sarcastic with them. I kind of get that, you know. Do I not charge you enough? Have I not beaten you enough? Because they beat you. You pay them to beat you. I could beat you. I mean, he doesn't exactly say that, but he's, that's what he's in. Fine. If that's what gets your attention, I'll, I'll beat you. But I love you instead. So these guys are asking, are going to ask here, who, what, why, where? We don't even know who you are. Where'd you come from? And they're jealous as all get out. And they laid hands on them, grabbed them, put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. You know what that means? It's sundown. We got to go home. Law says so. We got to be obedient to God. We got the joy stopped. Phew. Got the celebration in the temple and the glory to God. <laughs> Nip that in the bud right away. Now let's go home and have our roast or whatever they were going to eat. And the apostles are in jail. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. That's Paul's or uh, Peter's second sermon. 5,000 people get saved, men only, not including the women and children that probably heard. 5,000 people get saved. How do you stop that fire, you know? Well, you stop that fire, the Sadducees say, by grabbing these guys in front of them, and putting them in jail and letting everybody know who's boss and that whatever they got from these guys, this is what's going to happen to you. That's the idea behind this. Careful what you guys listen to. Careful what you believe. This is what's going to happen to you. I told you to watch Afghanistan Sunday. Keep your eyes wide open to what's going on there. Pay attention to what these things are happening as Christians to open your eyes, whether it bothers you or not. Know what's happening to the persecuted church, the church of Smyrna. It's written of in the book of Revelation. We worry about the contractors that got left behind, Twenty to 30,000 of them, people that are on our side, Americans, America, you know. But you got the underground church that's there, the house church that started. Jesus Christ was... Gospel was spreading like wildfire through Afghanistan because we've got soldiers over there. We always think, oh, you know, just if we could just have peace in the Middle East. Well, our soldiers on the ground are, <laughs> when you're a soldier, you get religious pretty quick. You get closer to God really quick. You start talking about Jesus a whole lot more than you used to when you don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. You get pretty bold. It's amazing how that happens. And so they would share with their interpreters. Their interpreters get saved. Their families get saved. Cousins, relatives. It just spreads that way. Amazing thing happening there. But now we see the Taliban have moved in and have taken over. And every one of those people's lives are in danger. And part of me says, that'll be amazing. 
Part of me says, oh my gosh, I can't imagine being those people. I can't imagine what they're going through, the terror they must be feeling, hiding out. No, that's me. They've had that feeling the whole time they've been believers in a Muslim world. Islam is predominant. What we're seeing with the Taliban is just the mask coming off, but the the, the idea of Islam is still the same and always will be, regardless of what mask you put on. Death to Christians. Kill the infidel. And so they've always had that threat. And what they're going to see now is the phase two. Now that they're believers and they're going to stand up for their faith and they're going to be open about it and many will be martyred. They're going to see in these people much like what these people see just a few chapters from now in the face of Stephen. As Stephen did n- nothing wrong, but Saul, who was breathing threats against the church, becomes Paul, holds the coats of those who are going to stone Stephen, and Stephen is going to char- not charge them with this crime, the murder. And it's going to break Paul or Saul at the time. He's going to. That's going to go through his mind as he's watching this kid get killed for his faith and see him not recant. Stephen doesn't recant. He doesn't doesn't renounce his faith. He doesn't take away his confession of, of, of Jesus Christ. In fact, he's preaching from the hole to the crowd, and it breaks the hardest man in the room, the one holding the coats who instigated it all who writes most of the New Testament, that'll happen in Afghanistan. We won't probably hear about it, obviously. We'll see it in heaven when we get up there. We see some amazing things when we get to heaven. So 5,000 people get saved, and the idea behind squashing this 5,000 from spreading is to arrest these men. That won't work. The church thrives off of persecution. We do much better when we're persecuted. And it came to pass on the next day, that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem, and they had set aside them in the, in the midst. They set them in the midst. And they asked, by what power, authority, or by what name have you done this? Well, here's Peter's example. Filled with the Holy Spirit, it says. Now, Why does Luke write that? Some say just reminding us that a long time ago in chapter 2, Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. Or is Peter filled afresh with the Holy Spirit for this moment right now when he's going to need an enormous amount of faith to be bold for Jesus Christ in front of all these people that have his life in in, in their hands, right? That's what I think is happening. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here whole or before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. What a cons- don't you 
want that kind of verbiage to come out of your mouth when it needs to. It's so precise. It's so concise. I'd have been like, you know, you know, you know, and then, um, and you know, um, I did, that's what I do. But when the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon him, it's exactly what Jesus said. Don't worry about what you're going to say when you are brought before magistrates and all, and you're going to be brought before magistrates and all these rulers. Don't worry about what you're going to say because in that hour, the Holy Spirit will give you exactly what you need to speak. That's why it says everything we just read. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, this is the Holy Spirit speaking through him, letting them know you killed the Messiah. It's a big deal. Now, the conclusion that they come with or come up with here in verse 13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, and they marveled. I focus on that a lot because I think that's very important. It doesn't mean they're ignorant. They spent three years or three and a half years with Jesus being tutored by him, hearing everything he had to say, you know, and, and that's why they're able to write the Gospels is because they remember, the Holy Spirit brings remembrance, all the things that they were present for. Now, they, they, they can't take credit for it, but they can take credit for being there. And, and I think that's important for us to hold on to as believers who maybe have a hard time understanding Scripture or comprehending it. You're the one that has to read the paragraph 12 times because you just can't focus you know, know this. The, the disciples didn't have an eidetic memory where they could just m- m- memorize everything Jesus said. At the, the, really, I mean, you know, the, 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 the Sermon at the Mount, nobody remembers that. Nobody had notepads. They weren't writing this stuff down. It was the Holy Spirit who brought it to their remembrance, so they were able to verbatim write down what Jesus said. But what they can take credit for is that they were there. What you can take credit for, what I can take credit for, is we're in the Word. You're there. I don't understand it. Get into it anyway. Read it again. And if you get tired of yourself, which we often do, I just, I'm not getting this. You spent time with the Lord. You spent time in class. You spent time in His Word. You spent time letting Him minister to you or try to teach your thick skull, you know. Some of you get it. Some of you don't have that problem. We have a game at home that we play. What's it, what's it called where we, with the frogs, the jumping frogs thing? Cranium. Well, cranium implies that you have a cranium. And I don't mind the creative ones or the ones where you have to memorize stuff or you have to draw. But when they get to that one that says, I want you to take this word and spell it backwards, I couldn't spell it forwards. And you want me to spell it backwards. I'm a 51-year-old man. I just, it's not there. I learn a lot of things. I know how to do a lot of things. I pick up on stuff. I can, I can do that. But you ask me to, no, it's not there. So I'm not making fun of everybody. I'm making fun of myself when it comes to comprehending God's word and understanding it and remembering it. Hey, I'm going to put in the time. I'm going to put in the love and the effort I want God to know I'm a C-minus student, and I'm going to spend time in here, as much time as I need to, Lord. And I pray that you'd somehow or another get this from here into here and into here. I'll take it any way you can get it. It takes an extra amount of effort sometimes, you know. 
but it's the Holy Spirit that's going to bring it to my remembrance. All through high school, all through, all through, I probably started in junior high. I'd have crib sheets. That's how I got through most of my classes. I'd either write them on my hand or I'd write them on a tiny piece of paper. And it's not because I wanted to cheat or because I was lazy. It's because I couldn't remember it. I couldn't. Confessions, right? No notes, right? Today. Here's the thing. These guys are quoting Scripture, using Scripture in a way that the Sadducees who spent all of their days studying and learning Scripture, and they were the guys that were able to do this, and they have a better working knowledge of Scripture than the guys who had the academic knowledge of Scripture. And that's everything. Having a working knowledge of Scripture is far more important than the academic knowledge of Scripture because if you can't apply information, it isn't wisdom. It can't become wisdom until you can apply the information. That's when it turns into wisdom. These guys had wisdom. They were able to look at this situation and tell these guys within four or five sentences exactly what they needed to hear. It was going to cut them to the heart and make them wow. That's the Holy Spirit bringing to remembrance and giving them the words to speak at the right time because they understood, I cannot do this on my own. I rely on the Holy Spirit by faith, filled with the Holy Spirit. I say the right thing. It isn't because I'm a genius. It's because I believed God's word when he told me I can't do it. Only he can. Therefore, I let him. They have a better understanding of Scripture. When you reject scriptures like this one in verse 11, the stone which was rejected by you builders has become the chief cornerstone. None of the rabbis, none of these Sadducees or the Pharisees or any of the priests understood what that meant because how could we reject the Messiah? That's who we're waiting for. That's who we love. So they didn't focus on that scripture. When you take that out of your, if you don't understand it to the point where you reject it is what I'm saying, which is what they had done, you lock scripture in your mind. In other words, you lock yourself out from truth. You lock yourself out from understanding the rest of the passages. Because if you throw this out, you've got to throw out Isaiah 53 or Isaiah 9. You've got to throw these scriptures out because none of them make sense. But if you believe them, it opens up passages to you. When you receive the word of God with gladness, it opens up passages. When I start in Genesis, oh boy, soapbox. When I start off with Genesis 1 and I believe it's actual and factual, that creation was created in seven days, not eons, not ages, not types of, not a day and a night. The sun rose, the sun set. When I believe the creation was created in seven days, it opens up so much more of God's word. When I don't buy that and I turn it into mythology because I can't get my mind around it, I try to work in Darwinism into that spot. And what they mean by that is seven millions of years. I lock scripture up. It freezes me out of so many other passages because I cannot believe that verse. Therefore, I cannot believe these other things because Jesus believed in an actual seven-day creation. And he's supposed to be the son of God. 
If I buy into this, and I'm just giving you an example, that's one example of Scripture that some Christians won't believe, and therefore they don't have a good working knowledge of Scripture because they've locked themselves out of passages. To take evolution to its final conclusion is you are no more valuable than an ant. Life is life. Some quotes from Peter, a rat. Let's have to go. A rat is a something, is a dog, is a boy. They're all equal. They're all life. They're all animals. And so we teach our kids this, and we teach them that, and we try to even teach Christian kids that and stick it into Scripture. That locks them out of all the passages they need to know. It puts them in a position where they grow up saying, well, okay, the world says, and you just said that the world is right, teacher of the Bible, that we are just animals. We have just come up from a goo into this miraculous thing that I am. And how do we know we're done? Is this it? The Bible says that I was created, Adam and Eve were created in man's image. The Bible says that every animal is created after their kind. We don't switch kinds. The Bible says that they were made first, second, third, and fourth, and they had to be done in this order. God says that. Well, yeah, but... It's just one example of some of the things that Christians have bought into, and they can't figure why they're not progressing. Why am I not moving forward? Because by faith, you haven't even believed chapter 1 of Genesis. These guys have a better working knowledge because they've accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior. Therefore, they understand. And all those Old Testament passages that everybody else ignored who have not accepted Christ... This scripture in verse 11 is locked for them because they don't understand it, but if you accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, you fully understand verse 11. <laughs> of course that's what it means. The stone, Jesus, the rock, whom the builders, the church, the synagogue, the temple, have rejected has become the chief cornerstone. It's the foundation of his church. Of course that's what it means. For unto us a child is given, <sighs> Jesus. To one does a son is given. He's the son of God. And upon him, upon his shoulders are going to be the governments. And he's called everlasting father. He's, he's everlasting God. He's God come in the flesh. If you don't believe that, you've locked out everything. These guys have a better working knowledge of scripture because by faith they believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God and the Messiah. And now they understand all those hidden passages. All the, and that's just it. They're not hidden they're blinded by their lack of faith. When I believe God's word and I go through it step by step and I accept it, maybe not fully comprehending, but hey, it's truth and I'm being taught by it. It's my judge. I'm not its judge. Things get revealed and opened. It's amazing. So they looked at the boldness of Peter and John and perceived they were uneducated and untrained men, probably had an accent of some kind from Galilee. They marveled. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. Why would you want to? Oh, well. I could just see the wheels spinning in these guys' heads. We got to get this. That's why they wanted to kill Lazarus. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. 
we can't celebrate that because because why? Because that means that Jesus is, says who he is. He, he's really him. And we don't believe that. So for my doctrine's sake, for my belief, I have to kill Lazarus. I have to kill the miracle. I have to kill that. Amazing. But when they commanded them to go outside of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, We've got a problem. What shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them. And from now on, they speak to no man in this name. They could try that. They're going to. So they called them, commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Probably one of the most important verses for a Christian to remember. I have to do what God wants me to do. I have to proclaim what God has done. I can't deny that the world around me is screaming that there's a creator. I can't deny it. I don't want to deny it. I will never squash what I can obviously see in all creation for the sake of making the world feel better about their theory of evolution. Never. So, after they said that to him, they further threatened them, and they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old on whom the miracle of healing had been performed. The idea behind that is, if it was somebody younger or someone that we didn't know very well, we could say that he was always better and this is a fake or something. That's the idea behind it. But they all, everybody knows the guy. See, God made sure, and this is a hard one for us to understand. At one point, Jesus heals a blind man, um, and the guys ask him, who sinned? Was it the man, or was it his mom and dad that sinned that made him blind? That was the prevailing understanding of the world. If you've got some kind of crippling problem, yeah, somebody did something wrong. It's like a curse. You've been hexed, you know, kind of thing. And Jesus' response was, neither. This man nor his parents sinned. He was made blind from birth so that God could glorify me at this time. Wow. You know. That'd be a tough gig. This guy here is 40 years old by the time he gets healed and he's been crippled to bring God glory at this time. To start the church, to help it. It's interesting. When I say to God now that I'm a believer, God, use my life and let it be consecrated unto thee. But use me however you want me to use me. Use me. He's taken that promise and since he's outside of time, has used my entire life all the way up until I accepted Christ to bring him glory at this time. It was at that time, at 19 years old, that I was supposed to receive the Lord. It was at that time that I was able to bring him glory at that with the people that were around me at that time. It's just interesting how God works. 
completely sovereign, yet completely free will at the same time. Amazing. It's a wonderful thing to, to believe, to have, to hold on to. It opens up so many scriptures when you understand that about God. He's always working. His plan is unfolding, and yet it's unfolding by the free will of man at the same time. Beautiful. Elegant. Very elegant. This guy <laughs> is bringing God glory. They, so because they couldn't punish him, because it's notable, they glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old on whom the miracle had, of healing had been performed. And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. Another passage that they couldn't understand. Now they do because they've experienced it. We believe Jesus is the Messiah. We've run into persecution. God delivered us from persecution. There was nothing they could do to us because of the amazing plan of God unfolding. And now we understand this new passage. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Again, sovereignty and free will. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the, same, through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, very important passage, again, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. It's the third time these guys have been filled with the Holy Spirit. Same people. I just throw that out there. I love their prayer. It's the exact same prayer that Paul, how can we pray for you, they ask. He says, just pray that I might be bold when I speak. I might be bold. And you got to look at Paul and say, you're like the boldest guy I know. You know, you want to be bold? You don't ever shut up. They beat you down, dead. You get up, somehow raised from the dead. We think some kind of miracle took place. And you go back into the city that tried to kill you. That's pretty bold, brave even, you know. Because he knows his heart. Without the Holy Spirit, I'm a crumbling mess. I'm a coward. I want to be liked. I don't want to get beat up today. I can, you can understand all those feelings and emotions. This is going to hurt, you know. When Paul, after gets that beat down that we just talked about here, he goes to Corinth, and God ministers to him. He says, you don't have to be afraid. You're not going to get hurt here. Because he was. He was afraid. Oh, it's another city. Oh, good. Going to the synagogue on Saturday again. Did you guys know you killed the Messiah? You know. He says, no. And he stays a year and a half in Corinth. You said I'm not going to get beat here, right? Okay, I'm buying a house. You know, I'm settling down. We need the Holy Spirit to be bold. 
I understand those cowarding feelings that maybe we have sometimes, and it's just, it's, it feels we're ashamed of it. I want to stand up for Jesus. I want to talk about Jesus. I want the world to know that I love Jesus, except today. You know what? Today, I just want to go unnoticed for once. Today, I just want to slip under the radar. You know, And that's why we pray every morning, God, give me boldness that I don't succumb to my fleshly weaknesses of wanting to be liked, of wanting not to have a burden today or not to be pointed out or not to be beat. I pray for the boldness for Afghanistani believers. They're going to need that. It's going to be hard for them. But I pray for boldness for them. I pray that they'd scream Jesus at the top of their lungs, regardless of the outcome or the consequences. I pray that their captors or their aggressors would see that love, that they would see that amazing boldness that God gives them. What a great prayer. And that's what they prayed. Just after this persecution, God, give us boldness to continue to speak, to be louder. The exact opposite thing took place. The, the world thought that they could shut them up, but they could threaten them and that that would get them to be quiet because certainly they would fear for their life more than they would love this Jesus. But they had it all backwards. Their Jesus died on the cross for their sins and to get any kind of beating, any kind of stripe, any kind of whipping, any kind of verbal abuse, that's it? That's all you guys have for me? They've shared in the sufferings of Christ to an extent. The rejection now, verse 32, the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. The two things took place there. The rich let go of the riches, and the poor didn't crave those riches anymore. Very important to know both things took place. The rich didn't count their possessions as theirs, but the poor didn't count those possessions as theirs. They considered themselves equal. They were in love with Jesus Christ. They wanted to live for him. If I needed a crust of bread and that's all it needed, that's all I want. Just a crust of bread to keep me going, to strengthen my day. I don't need everything. I don't need half. I don't need a percentage. I just need whatever keeps me going to minister and be a blessing to God while I'm here on earth. That doesn't last very long, but they tried. They weren't sure when Jesus was coming back again. When is that coming? And Jesus told them, in chapter 1 of Acts, hey, it's not for me to tell you when it's happening. I don't even know when it's going to happen. Only my Father knows it's going to happen when it happens. I'm obviously paraphrasing quite a bit. But they walked away with this constant urgency, this expectation that Christ could return at any moment, and they lived that way. That's why this works. They lived that way. I think if we could all stay in that place, we still could live that way. But we have fleshy days, I think. 
I'm not trying to discount what took place here or try to minimize it. I think it's wonderful. Um, but as, in, inevitably, as a pastor, I get that question, how come we don't still do this today? Well, because. I don't know. <laughs> because I don't think it would be sustainable. In fact, it wasn't sustainable. As time went on and they realized that Jesus wasn't coming before Monday, they all had to get up and go to work. And some people didn't go to work. And the pool gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller to draw from, to hand out from. We've had several times in history where people have really felt like Jesus is coming on this date at this time, this year, and they sell all their possessions, and they go on top of the mountain, and they just live there, and they wait for God to come, and then he doesn't come. And they come down the mountain with nothing. And they've got to get back on their horse, you know, and start working again, starting from zero. God wants to live with that, wants us to live with that urgency, that honest expectation of him returning at any time, but he also wants us to occupy till he comes. My ministry is, for Paul, he made tents. He continued to sew tents for people, still making friends and meeting different people. Um, telling people about the Lord across the, the sewing whatever table that they had or whatever, or but he still had to do those things and preach the gospel. It's still, it was just like that, and they, it's still like that to this day. I think we need to have a loose, loose grip on the things of this world and not be entangled with the things of this world so that if God did want to do something with us in a different area or place or whatever, that we should be able to cut strings and go. It should be pretty simple for us to do. We don't want to be so entangled with this world that we become uh, unusable by the Lord in the, in the, arm, or in the, in the war that we're in. This is war versus good versus evil, truth versus lies. So that's where they are. It's a beautiful moment. I love it. It sets us up for chapter 5, though. Verse 36 of chapter 4 says this, And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement. We like Barnabas. He's a good guy. He gets in a fight with Paul. That's okay. Brothers can fight. But this is where we first hear about Barnabas. He's called the son of encouragement. That's just who he was. What an encouraging guy. He was a Levite of the country of Cyprus. And having land, he sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, lots of people were doing this, but they made note of this because it sets us up for chapter 5 when a couple who sees Barnabas do that, the son of encouragement, well, they want to be like Barnabas, but they don't want to be like Barnabas. They go ahead and sell a piece of land. They keep back part of it because, well, you know, capital gains. And they give a portion of it, but they, they make everybody believe they're just like Barnabas. They begin to pretend to be something that they're not. And I don't have time to get into chapter 5, but it sets us up for that next week. Well, those two people that do this, that sell this real estate and give to the church like they're Barnabas, they end up dying next week by the Holy Spirit. This is the only time in the Bible you see slaying in the Spirit. This is truly being slain in the Spirit. They die. And I'm so glad that doesn't happen anymore. And it doesn't. I mean, not that we know of anyway. Maybe just some places. So there's a lying to the Holy Spirit that takes place, which is the beginning of the corruption that takes place in the body of believers, the church, people walking in the flesh, pretending to be something that they're not, not being as pure as they were. Even later on, Peter begins to become a hypocrite 
by not eating with the Gentiles when the Jewish guys were around, things begin to settle down here. And they settle down because of the flesh. I think that's one of the things we can take away from the book of Acts is things happen less and less. We get further and further away from what they just prayed. Lord, let notable miracles be done all the time as it accompanies the, the word of God. So that the word of God can be, have the exclamation point of God's miracles, like a stamp of approval on it. It becomes less and less because the church begins to settle down in the Holy Spirit in a bad way. They begin to not move in the Holy Spirit or be moved by the Holy Spirit or rely on the Holy Spirit. And we're going to see that decline somewhat. And uh, that doesn't have to be the case in your life. I'd like to say our lives as a body of believers, as the church worldwide, all of that is, we're, we're, uh, we're all parts of that. And if, and if, so that's why we have to focus on you and me. Your walk with Jesus can be as powerful and as close and as Holy Spirit-led and Holy Spirit-powered as you want it to be. It's up to you to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, in the unction of the Holy Spirit, being moved by the Holy Spirit. That is yours. I, you can't raise up your hands in worship and say, why isn't everybody else raising their hands in worship? Aren't they moved like I'm moved? That's got to get out of our heads. It has to be me and the Lord. That's why I'm raising my hands. I'm the one that feels like I should go up and pray for that person. Not why aren't everybody going up to pray for that person. No, you go. It's that kind of thing. And the church will be an amazing place when we all begin to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, using the gifts of the Holy Spirit that he's given us. And that's where I leave. I don't know how to sum that up except that. Just self-examination. Where am I? What's my walk? Is it data? Is it consistency? Which are all very important. Is it discipline? Very good to have all of that. But am I being moved by the Holy Spirit in my life? Am I reading his word and trusting him to bring it to my remembrance? Am I looking for opportunities that he gives me each and every day to be his hands and feet, to be his mouth, to share his word? Am I very attuned to the Holy Spirit, and that's up to us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the time we've had in it. We know it's the sword of your spirit. Holy Spirit, we thank you for the work that you do by glorifying Jesus, by leading and guiding us into all truth, by bringing to remembrance, to, to be our helper, to be our counselor. All these things that you've been tasked with, we thank you for that. And we pray that you'd fill us more and more and more to overflowing. Show us the gifts that we have that you've given to us. Help us to use those gifts to bring Jesus glory. Help us to be bold, Lord. Bless these folks as they've come. We've, we've come. We were where we were supposed to be tonight. We put in the time. We comprehended what we could comprehend, but we heard everything. And we know that you, Holy Spirit, can bring these things to our remembrance and give us opportunities tomorrow and to actually remember to use the things we've learned tonight. We pray for that this week, the rest of this week, that we might have wonderful testimonies of how you used us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you need prayer before you go, please come up. Be glad to pray with you about anything. Just come on up.
Otherwise, have a good rest of the week.